Hi, I'm Rowan and welcome to Mental Health by TalkLink. Today's episode is the second episode in a three-part segment with clinical psychologist Rhiannon Thomas. If you haven't already, best you listen to episode one on adolescent suicide before getting into this one, which will be on psychosis. The purpose of this podcast is to have open chats with these professionals and is not designed to be used as individualized therapy. Please take it as general information only and visit the show notes for personalized support if you need it. These podcasts are brought to you by TalkLink, which is an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. Finally, if you'd like to ask Rhiannon a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. We'll do our best to answer it in a follow-up Q&A session. Okay, let's dive in. The longer you are in a psychotic world, the longer you will be, and the more likely you will have subsequent episodes. Now, Rana, this is really, really helpful. I want to go on to the next topic. Do you still have time? Can we keep going? Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah absolutely. One of the, the beauties of lockdown, hey? We've got more time. <laughs> Perfect. Good. So in our earlier conversation, prior to us starting to record, we talked about some of what you do and you mentioned you also deal with the fairly acute end of the spectrum of adolescent psychosis. Can you tell us what that is? How does it work? What do you see? What, what are some of the experiences you've come across? And, and just, I guess, introduce that as a topic to us, please. Yeah, absolutely. So I will stress I don't work directly now with psychosis at present, but I, um, I, did, I definitely did do a lot of work in that space a few years ago. And I worked in what was called an early psychosis team. So we were an early intervention team that dealt with early first episode presentations of psychosis. And I think just broadly speaking, psychosis is a very poorly understood term that gets thrown around all the time. And often we, our mind, I think, goes directly to sort of movies of one flew over the cuckoo's nest or people with severe mental illness. So I want to, I guess, stress that psychosis is actually an umbrella term similar with suicidality in that it, it's actually a cluster of symptoms whereby somebody loses touch with reality. So they may see things, taste things, hear things, believe things that they not otherwise would. And it's a symptom of severe mental illness, but it can also be a symptom of really significant stress and trauma. And it can also be experienced to some degree in the normal population. But on its own accord, it doesn't mean, for example, that you have schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder. It is an umbrella term sort of speaking to a cluster of symptoms. So just to to reiterate that for somebody to be diagnosed with, say, schizophrenia, they have to have the presence of psychosis but the presence of other symptoms. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you would not diagnose somebody with schizophrenia alone just because they may have had some psychotic symptoms. You'd have to look at the other cluster of symptoms For example, there needs to be the presentation of negative symptoms, which is things like the loss of motivation, loss of interest in things, behavioural disorganisation, sort of flattened, restrictive mood. Um, And these features need to be present for quite a considerable amount of time. So they need to be present for up to six months to actually work out whether or not you have schizophrenia. 
But what we do know, like I said earlier, is that psychosis can be present along lots of different mental illnesses or diagnoses. It can be present for those experiencing sort of a major depressive episode. They can have psychotic features. It can be present when somebody's had significant trauma. It can be present, you know, when people are severely sleep deprived. Hmm. And in the particular team that I worked on, it was really try to ascertain and work out whether somebody's just experienced a fleeting psychotic episode that might not never translate to a further mental health diagnosis or whether we're looking at something that is demonstrating itself to be slowly developing into a mental health disorder. I know from the literature that we see a higher incidence of psychosis in adolescents. So, so firstly, can I just do a fact check on that? Is that right? And do we know why that happens? Why there are more people going through adolescence that start um, experiencing psychosis than people in later stages of life? I don't think I could validate and speak directly to that data. What we do know, however, is that if it is going to present itself, it's more likely to present itself in adolescence. Mm-hmm. And actually, if we're going to have an impact in terms of the trajectory of someone else's mental health outcomes, it is about assertively and intensively, intensively, yeah, intensively engaging in that early intervention to prevent a lifelong chronic mental health disorder. Again, I think in terms of the the way of understanding why it would manifest in adolescence, we'd, we'd normally use what's called that biopsychosocial model and the stress vulnerability model of psychotic episodes. And really that looks at what are the vulnerability factors. And so there would be, for example, family history of mental diagnoses in which there were psychotic episodes, We would also look at childhood trauma, which we know is a significant risk factor. We would look at coping styles. We would look at substance use. We would look at external stresses, whether it's high pressure, whether it's study, whatever it would be. And we know as well that adolescents are kind of more vulnerable to engage in those kind of risk-taking behaviours, whether it is that they're dabbling in substances, which might make them more vulnerable to develop these episodes. But overall, there's not, a, there's not one sort of single uh, reason for why adolescents would develop psychosis. I imagine it must be a terrifying thing to one day hear or smell or taste something that's not there. When you were in the team working with that, did you experience that? Did you, I guess, work people through that first trauma of what I'm hearing or seeing is actually not there? And how do they make sense of that? How do they start processing the difference between real and, and fictitious? Yeah, well, look, I, it's um, really, really difficult. I think what I would mostly see in the, to begin with is this sort of really significant paranoia that these young people would experience around feeling like people are following them, feeling like people Mm. are out to get them, feeling like hearing voices telling them that they're horrible, that they should hurt themselves. But because of the paranoia, the paranoia makes them feel like they actually can't really seek help because it's kind of like the people that I'm meant to trust, I can't trust. So that's really kind of can reinforce or perpetuate the paranoia in a way. Mm. And so really a lot, of the, the, a lot of the cases that I remember working with would often come through the inpatient unit when they were admitted. But it's definitely incredibly frightening 
for for them to experience it because essentially it's real it's absolutely real for them just as if you'd you know might hear a dog bark they hear that and it might not actually be there and I guess with that early intervention and, and medication but also psychological interventions around getting them to understand the function of what that psychosis meant for them for example or the function of that symptom that slowly when we've seen some shifts in their um, what we'd call insight so their ability to make sense or understand that they experience something that they wouldn't normally be experiencing but I would definitely at the same time saw a lot of people who didn't who really lacked that insight but could still at least engage to some degree about acknowledging that they don't have those powers for example anymore whether or not they believe if that um, whether or not they kind of believe whether it's reality or not if that makes any sense do you ever see positive presentations of of all these sense activations are the voices ever really nice and tell you you're incredible or do you ever taste truffles on toast or do you ever hear the most exquisite classical music or is it always negative because the, just the anecdotal stories I've heard, they tend to be quite negative. Maybe do you sometimes get these really beautiful songs that you hear that aren't there? Yeah, I remember um, a case in particular where this gentleman believed he was God. He believed he could walk on water. He believed he could fly. Um, he had these beautiful sort of verbal hallucinations from people kind of telling him that he was holy and an honorable man and I guess the trickiest part about it is that it's it's not it it doesn't seem to be sustainable you know and when we what we know from the brain with, with all the chemicals that get flooded when somebody experiences psychotic symptoms is that to some at one point it starts to impair their ability to function and it's not sustainable because the chemicals you know you get a rush of dopamine and serotonin um and what do you do after it starts to you know come away it it, what 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 we do normally see is it then kind of blurs and it starts to impact their ability to to function or the paranoia starts to creep in after all of those maybe delusions of grandiosity or um whether it's magical thinking or feeling like you've got special powers what I've generally have seen is it kind of then flips and it's maybe they believe they have special flowers, but maybe they might jump off a building because they genuinely believe that they're going to fly, which is where we'd really want to intervene and, and yeah, assist them as much as possible. So because we know they can't fly despite how strongly their belief might be. But certainly I've had lots of experiences where there's been young people who have had really friendly voices that have said lots of nice things to them where they've kind of communicated with rappers they've thought that they're best friends with Kanye West or best friends with Tupac even though Tupac is dead you know or I had one boy who he thought he took the blue pill in the matrix and he'd woken up all right yeah you know and he was so so convinced and you know what we know about delusions is is that you can't really question or, or challenge them. You know, it's so much conviction that, well, how do you know I didn't take the blue pill? You know, I'm, I'm a product of the matrix and I should have taken that red pill and I would have actually seen that my life actually isn't, you know, I'm just in this encased, what a, I can't remember the matrix very well, but I'm just in this encased. Um... <laughs> so the blue pill put them back into the matrix and the red pill ejected them into the real world. And so... Your um, 
the the gentleman you were speaking to, he thought that he was still in the matrix, in the simulation. In the simulation. Yeah. yeah. And it's quite it's quite fascinating because you you know you can't argue with them. That's their sort of conviction. They believe it with so much conviction because it's a delusion. What we start to see is you know with medication and with taking away some of their stresses, you start to see that they start to come around and they start to think, why did I think that I, why did I think that? Or why did I experience that? So, but it's definitely a very fascinating field. So what are the treatments to psychosis? Yeah, so a lot will come into the service, as I said, through inpatient treatment. So a lot of the time, particularly if it becomes quite severe, they will be treated with what's called an antipsychotic medication. Mm-hmm. And again, depending on whether the treating team might think that it's an underlying mental health diagnosis, so they are starting to be concerned that maybe it is developing bipolar disorder or a schizophreniform disorder or a schizoaffective disorder, or they might think that maybe it's actually a drug-induced psychotic episode, in which case they might be hospitalised, but the treatment, the symptoms diminish a lot quicker Mm -hmm. and so often they will be on some form of antipsychotic when they would come to our service in particular and the work that we would do is really get them to understand what led them to develop this psychotic episode you know what was going on in their life were they incredibly stressed were they incredibly overwhelmed were they engaging a lot of substance use were they um, having difficulty coping were they slowly losing touch of reality for a really long time, but they just didn't want to tell anybody about it. They didn't want to be seen as crazy. Mm. Um, And the reason why we work really strongly to get them to understand the why to then to kind of help them and support them to understand what to do if that becomes a when. And so we'd get them to really understand what might be their early warning signs. So for example, speaking about some of the bipolar cases that I had when they would have really significant manic episodes, I would really get them to slowly get to understand that perhaps when they're starting to have less sleep or they're having increased energy or their mood's becoming really elevated, they'd be the kind of early warning signs that I get them to think about, hmm, maybe I need to reach out to the people around me. Maybe I potentially need to start restart or continue to take my medication. Maybe I need to link in and see my... Um, mental health clinician just to kind of check in to see how I'm going once they have a really strong understanding of the early warning signs we also really try and involve and this is more relevant to childhood adolescents mostly adolescents because we don't really see much childhood psychosis but um, we'd really try and help their parents and their families or the system around them Mm. understand what might be their early warning signs or we'd help them and support them to understand the function behind their psychotic experiences. So for example, what we do know is there's a strong link and association between childhood trauma and psychotic episodes. Mm. So for example, we might get them to understand that actually there was a time in your life where people were out to hurt you, you know, whether you were running away all the time from a perpetrator of family violence. So actually acknowledging that it makes sense that during this really stressful time, you developed this idea that the mafia were out to get you or the Illuminati were out to get you or people were kind of trying to follow you because there was a time in your life when that actually happened and and kind of acknowledging acknowledging that and getting them to understand that there's a bridge, there's a a link that's reality-based that kind of makes them feel a bit more validated that they're not just, you know, it might not make 
direct sense that it's the mafia, but it makes direct sense to them that actually there was a time where they experienced people hurting them and harming them and wanting to control them. So that can also be part of that treatment plan as well. And I guess similar to other mental health presentations, really, I think looking at the other vulnerability factors. So maybe they were, you know, obsessively looking up different theories online, whether it's conspiracy theories, whether it's Mm -hmm. thinking about the dark web, whatever it may be, and actually trying to build up their external environment to prevent them from doing that, connecting them socially, connecting them with other activities day to day, building up their sense of agency and, and mastery so they're not related, which also we know makes them vulnerable too. There's definitely also the impacts of drug and alcohol as you as you might recognize. And, and I, I do think that there's a, definitely a strong association between substance use and psychosis, but I do think society as a whole probably believe that people who use drugs become psychotic and and what we know is that it's actually not the case i saw a lot of cases where there was never any substance use and they still develop these psychotic episodes and it just goes to show the the impacts of of stress and and trauma and all of that on the brain doesn't necessarily have to to be derived from substances but in the instances for example where there would be a lot of substance use. I think what I'd often see is the association between cannabis use um, Mm. and psychosis. And also interestingly, when they would cease substances quite suddenly, there were a few cases where, you know, they might, a young person may be using cannabis for up to two years and then they've decided to just suddenly cease it or they've run out of it. And then they suddenly end up having all of these really frightening experiences, seeing things, hearing things, engaging in very disorganized behavior, not being able to make sense of it. And it's actually because it's a drug-induced psychotic episode that the brain has become so accustomed to the chemicals of THC that suddenly in the absence of it, it's like, what? What's going on? Mm. Do we see that as a part of alcohol withdrawal as well? Probably less likely um, with adolescents, I suppose. But certainly we'd see lots of episodes from, say, methamphetamine use, so ice use there would be more of those sort of transient, brief psychotic episodes where they might be withdrawing from ice. I think probably one of the most difficult part of that, I think, that we often would see is to trying to work out if it's drug-induced psychosis versus, versus an underlying schizophreniform disorder, but they've continued to take substances. So we actually, that was, I remember, one of the sort of the, the trickiest cases to navigate because they're still using substances daily and they're having psychotic symptoms daily. What's the chicken and what's the egg? And how do we know, how will we ever know unless they do cease their their substance use? What would your message be to someone maybe listening or watching who may themselves one day experience something and wonder, was that real? Or maybe realize that they are experiencing some form of hallucination? What does that mean for them? What are the next steps? What should you do? What should you not do? Well, look, I think in the absence of other symptoms, you know, I would probably check in with those around you. (laughs) For example, some people may have beliefs that are, are separate to the rest of society and they believe it with complete conviction. Um, and I know it can be a bit of a controversial sort of topic, but you know, you can compare it to sort of 
really sort of strong sects of religion where they, they actually believe a cluster of beliefs that are different to the rest of society. And that doesn't mean you're psychotic. That just means you have a, a unique set of belief or you have a unique belief system. However, if, say, you had a really strong belief system and, for example, you're, you're noticing that your dog is talking to you and you're noticing that when you're watching the TV, you're getting all these messages from the TV that aren't necessarily directly related to what you're watching and you're, you're noticing that potentially might be colours that are coming out of the corner of your eyes and things like that and people around you are noticing that you're acting a bit strange, your voice is changing, your behaviour is changing. There would be the kinds of cases where I'd probably check in and say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling really well. I'm noticing all these things happening to me. Have you noticed a change in me? And seeking support as soon as you can, whether it's going to your GP, again, whether it is contacting psychiatric triage service, whether it's sort of connecting with a friend and going with a friend, you know, to your GP or seeing a psychologist, you know, if you're too afraid to, to go on your own. But I think not being too alarmed if it is these sort of one-off transient experiences. I remember saying to you offline, Ruan, you know, some people often feel like their phone is vibrating in their pockets, which is a really common hallucination. That doesn't mean that you require inpatient treatment (laughs) and be placed on an, an antipsychotic. Also, what we know in the normal population is people actually hear their thoughts as if you know, they've been spoken to. And again, it doesn't mean that they're experiencing a full-blown psychotic episode. Similarly, for those who are engaging in those more psychotropic drugs, such as acid, such as magic mushrooms, DMT, we know it's really common to have psychotic experiences. We might develop connections with things. We might feel like, you know, we're connected to a, a parallel universe. Um, But what we know in the absence of that drug, we come back to reality. And it's about if you did have a friend who was experiencing a little bit more of those bizarre, whether it's beliefs or experiences after, say, taking one of those substances, you know, the recommendation would be to just try and monitor them really closely and just sit through their experience, but, but know that it's likely going to pass and they might not necessarily need to go to emergency or attend any sort of hospital, for example, that actually it's, it's, it's common as we would understand. Yeah, and there's been a lot of chatter in the media about the use of LSD and microdosing, Silicon Valley that are all microdosing now and magic mushrooms. So I'm actually glad you touched on that because I do feel like there's a societal swing back to explore those styles of drugs do we know have we had any experience of whether or not use of those sorts of drugs can actually cause like a permanent state of psychosis could it be that you're you're on the edge and when you take that you know that's it you're you're going to be in that altered state for the rest of your life have you seen that kind of thing do you know anything about that Yeah, and look, I I think it comes back to that stress vulnerability model that I kind of mentioned a bit earlier, which I hope made sense and wasn't as clear as mine. But um, I guess basically the short answer is we don't know. And the reason is, is that 
we might be predisposed to a really serious mental illness, in which case it might never manifest itself until after we've taken acid for the first time. And that is what's so scary and so frightening that it's not the acid that caused you to develop um, a manic episode. It's actually all the underlying factors that were just sitting there kind of waiting. That might have been the stressor to, for example, produce a um, psychotic episode. Similarly with, say, postnatal psychotic episodes, which are quite common, these mothers might not have never, ever experienced any form of symptom of, of a mental illness. But it was the right amount of stress, for example, where lots of hormones, big influx, and then bang, they've developed this psychotic episode. And that might have been the stressor, which they had this underlying vulnerability for a very long time without um, knowing. You know, you could have five people in a family and a parent may have had a severe mental illness. Three of those people could have ended up, could go on to end up developing a severe mental illness, two of which may never. And why, you know, why is that? What is the genetic vulnerability? And I think that's because there's still so much we just don't know about the brain. And when working with young people, we really encourage them to try and think about the impacts of substance use and especially those psychotropic drugs because, yeah, some people could take them every weekend and never end up in a hospital admission, whereas others could take it once and end up with a severe long-term mental illness they might develop schizophrenia and again we don't it's we we can't necessarily say that that drug caused it but we definitely know it's a risk factor Mm. for it and I think that's a really tricky balance and and very very difficult for as you know you know adolescents and young adults who go to those festivals and you know recreate we know recreational use is everywhere but I think it probably um, takes the discussion to a bit more of a broader context around sort of legal the legalization of um, substances is that we don't know exactly what we're taking and so we don't know the exact individual effect it's going to have on us and we know that for some people who don't drink coffee every day they're going to have much more of a significant impact to caffeine versus say myself who's quite used to three cups of coffee a day it's always (laughs) going to be a very individual experience just like those psychotropic drugs what i will say though about microdosing is is probably a very different kind of area of discussion is because it is controlled and they are controlled doses and they are really small doses so the likelihood of it actually producing long-term impairment is probably a lot lower than taking a couple of tabs of acid as a music um, at a music festival i know there is preliminary data on it but there's mm-hmm. probably a lot more that needs to come out before there's those clear correlations between those microdosing and therapeutic outcomes. It's such an interesting topic. And I know that the world of science is coming back around to studying psychotropics and the effect on your brain. So I'm really excited to see what the science says as as we learn more. It does sound from what you're saying, like you are rolling the dice, like you're playing with fire and you could have everything straight. And then Tashul Tana was that one experience, and it's purely anecdotal based on one person, but the street musician that became hyper-famous, Tashul Tana, apparently went to a friend's house or an acquaintance's house, and the way she tells the story is she had a pizza that had magic mushrooms on it, and she knew that it was magic mushrooms. She had a, a slice or two, and it was actually really, really strong, 
and it sent her into a really, really intense and scary trip. And it left her with all this trauma. Um, it was basically like entering, she says, a terrible nightmare. And she didn't really manage to leave that dark space. And she actually attributes music as one of the soothing balms to help her keep her sense of reality. So every time she'd start playing music, she would get back to reality. And that's one of the reasons why she became just so talented because she was playing music all day long just to keep a sense of reality because she felt that she lost so much. So that story just really um, scared me. And I know it's one person's experience and I know it's anecdotal, but it's just such a visceral story. And you can just imagine her absolute terror day and night of having all these things happen to her and around her. And it's great that she managed to move all that, I guess, energy and focus into music and end up with something quite beautiful at the end of it. And maybe she wouldn't have been the musician she is today had she not gone through that. But it's it's certainly a really scary story to imagine that sort of thing happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think in working with lots and lots of cases of young people who have had such bizarre and and frightening experiences that what I would consistently hear from them is that they wouldn't wish it upon their worst enemy and that actually there's there's feeling like people are going to kill them in their bed and put chips into their brain or control their every move are, are experiences that are traumatic in themselves and it a psychotic episode can be you know another trauma to predispose somebody for another psychotic episode you know these experiences are incredibly traumatic because you know they're real for them you know and it's would be incredibly frightening to say believe that you know the the government is is tracking our every move and they're going to take us this is quoting a particular case I remember take us and use us for medical research and cut up our body parts if they catch us so every time we see a police car or anyone in a suit we think that you know within minutes we're going to be mutilated because of such conviction and that belief it's absolutely terrifying these people don't want to leave their house they don't want to engage in a mental health service because they don't trust anybody and it can be really really incredibly frightening I remember another case where this boy who was only probably 16 years old believed that he had worms under his skin and they were crawling and they were terrifying. And so he would actually try and cut the worms out. But for people around him, people were like, what are you doing? There's no worms under your skin, but he could feel them. He could feel them crawling. He could feel them entering his brain. He could feel them swiggling around inside him, which was incredibly, incredibly traumatic. Sometimes they might believe what's called Capgra delusions in which they feel like their parents, the ones that they love the most, aren't actually them, they're imposters. And so they might look like their parents, but the delusion is that actually someone else has taken over their body, hmm. which is incredibly frightening. So, you know, instead of their mother coming in, they see that, you know, that's not my mother, that's somebody else taking over my mother's body. And so you can imagine the impact that that has for, for families trying to support their child or loved one going through this, in which the people that they know it, they're trying to care for the most are pushing them away or, or they're part of their delusion. Same with, for example, those who might experience those really severe manic episodes, the amount of shame involved with the over-familiarity and high 
high um, higher libido and arousal and, and sleeping with people they wouldn't normally sleep with and spending enormous amounts of, of money on. Uh, I know another case of a girl who, you know, I think spent thousands of her mum, of her parents' money on, on crystals and went out and stole pot plants and dug up her entire family's backyard and put all these pot plants in them because she wanted to communicate in a certain way with with her parents and coming around and realizing what did I do is also incredibly traumatic I guess reinforces what we see in those in, in bipolar cases of them having these major depressive episodes afterwards because they've spent all this money they've built up all these fines they've sometimes become unfaithful to their partners and they were completely out of touch with reality at that time and the impact that that has on the families are are enormous and huge and stigmatizing and I think the reason why it's so important that there is early intervention for anybody who's had psychotic episodes is because what we do know is that the longer anybody experiences psychosis for the more likely it's going to have long-term brain damage and we know that, especially for those with schizophrenia, with it does lead to long-lasting cognitive impairment. And if you think about it, it's sort of like the longer you think a certain way, the more entrenched it is. It's exactly the same with psychotic experiences. The longer you are in a psychotic world, the longer you will be, and the more likely you will have subsequent episodes, which is why it's an area that you do want to have really assertive treatment in because regardless of whether they're positive experiences, as in positive as in positive voices and, and positive visuals, at one point they're not always going to be positive and they, they're going to be really frightening and that's why it's really, really important that there is that effective and immediate treatment for when it does, if it does occur. Yeah, absolutely. That's quite interesting and I've actually never thought of it before in the sense that a severe psychosis might create such intense trauma for you to try and balance later on so that's a really good insight have you had any case studies that you can reflect on where you have managed to work with a patient and transition from a space where they had severe psychosis through to living a normal life i had another girl who thought that i was taking her to get her brain removed you know because and you know what In, in some ways you can kind of understand why she would think that because, you know, she was really unwell. She, she believed she had seven people communicating with her. She believed she could communicate through telepathy. So often she'd just be silent looking at me like this. And I'd be like, you know, hello, what, what's going on? What's going on with you? Did you, you know, have anything to say? And she'd be like, I've said it. Why aren't you listening? I've been talking to you this whole time. Right, so she was speaking to you telepathically during the consultation. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's quite disorienting for her, isn't it? And and confusing and so frightening. I remember with her, she ended up going to the train tracks and the police picked her up because they thought obviously she was at risk to hurting herself, but she was waiting for a boy, a boy who was somebody that didn't exist who told her through telepathy that he was going to meet up with her. And so she was just waiting for three hours at the, at the edge of a train, waiting for him to, to appear. And he didn't ever existed. 
so the police ended up picking her up because like I said they were really worried that you know she was gonna jump and she was acting really strangely and behaving really weird what makes it really difficult for emergency staff is that you know she was like no no I was waiting for somebody which seems like a perfectly perfect explanation that she was just waiting with someone at the train station but it's not until you really unpack and uncover that she was waiting for a boy for somebody who's not trained in mental health they might say oh you know who you who are you looking for I was waiting for a boy oh you know you're an adolescent waiting for a boy at train tracks you're okay you can go home yeah right and I imagine she's speaking with absolute conviction and certainty because in her mind she is experiencing these things and she really is hearing the voices yeah and so you would you would believe them, you know? And so what happened for her? She was probably much more of a success case than the other. I continued to see her for, I think I ended up working with her for about 12 months and a really sad story, but she ended up slowly coming to terms with and developing insight into the function of what these what these um, visual and verbal hallucinations that she experienced. And she came we kind of got her to kind of really understand that actually she was really um, socially isolated. She was really bullied at school. She didn't have many friends. She couldn't really trust her friends. So she kind of had this psychotic world of these people who would talk to her. And again, she'd also struggle to communicate about how she'd feel. So through the psychotic experience of telepathy, she kind of got to the point of understanding that that was kind of her way of connecting in a way that she didn't need to connect with people. So it actually was kind of like this protective function that it served And it got to the point where she started slowly understanding and appreciating what was behind her psychotic symptoms, but also getting to the point where she wanted to learn the skills that she needed to not depend on them. And she ended up actually coming to a full recovery. And I remember she also was using quite a bit of cannabis as well. And she stopped using cannabis and started to really take some steps in her recovery and and never ended up having subsequent psychotic episodes, which is really really positive outcome but you can see how you can go from so being so acutely unwell to yeah quite a quite a successful recovery kind of talks to how if you get it if you get in early you've got much more of a success rate but um if you get in too late it is the outcomes are a lot poorer well that's it for today if you've enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review and a comment We read every single comment and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. It's also the best way to promote these conversations and make this podcast more discoverable on all the podcatching services. Thank you so much and see you again soon.